So let's go ahead and turn there. First Timothy chapter 3. We're going through a study on the pastoral epistles. And here we are now in chapter 3. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 13. But let me just introduce it with the title of the study is the, the character of men who lead. And we specifically at this point are talking about men who lead in the church. Um, and, you know, we're going to apply it there because this is what the Tim, uh, Timothy was getting instruction for. But, I mean, character counts not just uh, among uh, church leadership. It counts in the home. It counts where you work, where you go to school, um, in, your, in your community. And so there's great application for um, every one of us in terms of the kind of character we ought to have. But we're looking this morning specifically at the character of men who lead inside the church. Jesus came to this earth and he ministered and he taught. His character was impeccable. There was no sin found in him, even in the midst of the most grueling temptation any human has ever faced. He was without sin. As he died on the cross and rose from the dead, then ascended to heaven, he left behind 12 men that would lead and establish the disciples, the followers of Jesus, in an institution called the church. And there in the church, these men began to influence in the early days. But as the church grew and as time went on, the missionary efforts of Paul and Barnabas and others as well, the church was spreading out all over the world. You couldn't have these 12 men leading the churches because there was way too many churches that were being established. So the question became, what do we do to make certain that there is quality, godly leadership in these churches? So Paul wrote the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, to instruct the church about the way men ought to lead. So rather than just having 12 There became hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of men that are gifted to oversee and to take care of the church. Now, the the 12 disciples, they had a, a specific, unique goal in the early church. And that unique goal... Um, and purpose was to um, take the instructions of Jesus to disseminate them out and to re- also at the same time be receiving revelation um, as they walked out of a, 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 um, the Old Testament and the ordinances and the ceremonies um, that were associated with the temple worship to how the followers of Jesus Christ should now function. And the twelve had that. These were passed on to others that were able to teach And there you have the leadership of the church. Well, here we are some 2,000 years later since Jesus ascended. And those first apostles began to raise up men to lead the church. Here we are today. And the church is still in need of men of character that lead. And to answer the question of, well, what kind of men should be put in place to do this? We come to chapter 3, verse 1. We read, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop must be blameless. And we'll stop right there. We begin by just seeing this call that God places upon men. And those that would have this desire to be a bishop, or to be an overseer, or to be... um, 
somebody who's in the presbytery, or to be somebody that's an elder. All of these are synonymous terms. Um, Paul says this is a good desire. This is, if a man desires, aspires to have that influence over the church, this is a great thing. The word for desire here means to strive to attain, to accomplish a goal. And of course, the goal here of being an overseer of the church is to tend and is to train and is to develop the body of Christ, to teach them. And Paul says, those that want to do this, Timothy, this is a great thing. Now, some can aspire to positions for wrong reasons. But, you know, in the first century church, there was a great purifier that existed for those that wanted to lead the church. It was called persecution. Persecution made a real uh, test to see if those that were wanting to lead had the right motives. Now, it didn't exclude everybody. We know that because we see in many places where men got into positions for wrong reasons. But, you know, having persecution and threatening your life, it was a way that purified. And so Paul's saying, hey, those that want to do this, this is a good thing. Let me just say, as Paul talks about this, it's a good work. When Jesus was here on planet Earth, in his 33 years, he chose to establish one institution, one organization. His emphasis was not on politics. His emphasis was upon the church, was upon the gathering together of believers. Now, we're living at a time right now that's so unique. It is no small matter that the church of Jesus Christ is not meeting and gathering together as our Lord has instructed us. It's not a, it's not a small deal. It's a big deal. Now, listen, it's a big deal that small businesses are, are having to shut down. It's a big deal that, you know... The world has shut down. I'm not trying to downplay that or call that insignificant. But let me just say, it's the the institution of the church that Jesus established. And this is my, my simple point. We should not look at this as some small matter. Oh, well, you know, this store's closed, that store's closed, the church is closed, and that's... No. It stands out as being different because this is where heaven has invested her resources as in the church. And so we need to be faithful and diligent in prayer for one another. I think we probably have seen more prayer for the church in these last weeks than at other times. And we can thank the Lord for that, but that's not the end game. It's just to have more prayer and be separated. It's to to actually come together. Now, some have read into this where he says, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. They look at that and say, oh, you see, it's just a desire. Anybody can desire this. And if anybody does desire, it's a good thing. It's no big deal that somebody would have a a special call upon their life. And I don't think that is what Paul is saying here at, at all. The evidence that he uses, or the fact that he uses the word desire, is no evidence that the selection process of God in choosing men has somehow uh, been removed. God does call men, and we see this in so many places. The call of God upon an individual to do work. Now listen, God does not just call a man, um, he calls a man to the offices of the, within the church, but you know, God calls people to specific works outside of the church too. 
But uh, the idea that just all you have to do is have a desire to be a pastor, and that's a good thing. And as long as you can communicate the Word of God, then, then you have fulfilled the task. It's more than that. It's, it is a desire, but it's a desire that God places upon the heart of a man. Well, how do I know that God has called uh, me or anybody else to that position? Well, I think one is, do they bear the fruit? Is do you see them being fruitful in that work that God's called them to? Another way to tell that to an individual is if you can go do anything else and feel like you are still being obedient to the Lord, then go do that. But if it is heavy upon your heart that I must give myself to the work of being an overseer, that is one clear uh, indicator that you've been called. I think you also see men around you and the church around you will affirm that call and that's where the place of ordination comes in. So don't understand this word desire well as long as i desire it no there's more to it than that i think paul was simply saying those that want to be in this position it's a good thing that there are men like that i think we can all think of people in our life that have served in this capacity that have truly been a blessing the responsibilities of the elder or the overseer is to teach, is to train, is to tend to, it's to, it's to help to over, with oversight of the finances. These are all things we see in Scripture. But a bishop or an overseer or an elder, all synonymous terms, is a person that's been called by God and gifted by God to care for the spiritual well-being of the followers of Jesus Christ. This man must be fully committed to Christ, and he must bear the fruits of a person that is fully developed in the Christian faith. Now, by fully, I don't mean perfect. I just mean that person has come to the place where they are mature. And that is really what's in sight as we go through this passage, as we see a fully developed Christian character. You know, the New Testament does not spend a lot of time talking about the structure of how a church should be established. And we'll talk more about that if time permits in the end of our study. You know what the New Testament emphasizes about the church? The character of the people that are leading the church. That's the emphasis. It's not is it elder run, is it congregational run, is it, you know, a, a bishop run church. Um, what's, what's important is the character. Now, I believe there's uh, indications of this, of what the church should look like structurally. But that's one that there are many debates about. But when you come to the character of a man, there is no room for debate. And this is what Paul's talking about. The first thing that he says there in verse 2 is that a man should be blameless. Does that mean sinless? No. It doesn't mean that because other places in Scripture tell us that um, the one that says that he has no sin is not telling the truth. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what does the word blameless means? The word in its most literal sense is unable to lay hold of. You can't grab hold of a man who is a, a uh, elder or a pastor or a bishop and bring some railing accusation against him and it stick. So the idea is that their life is lived in such a way that nobody can look and say, this guy's a liar, this guy's a thief. This guy doesn't treat his family well. And so the idea of what it means to be blameless is going to be developed in these, these coming verses here. The, you could also, and I, probably some of your uh, translations have this word, 
irreproachable. You can't bring an accusation against this person. They're not able to be objectively charged with wrongdoing. Now, I say objectively because people can subjectively and have brought slanderous assaults against men that lead churches down through the ages. Paul had charges brought against him all the time, but they were not ones that would stick because his character was lived out in such a way that as he gave a defense, he would often say, you know how I conducted myself when I was in your midst. I am blessed to be able to labor with a group of men as uh, elders and pastors um, in the church that have this kind of character. We move on there in verse 2, and we see that he is also to be the husband of one wife. To translate this phrase literally means a one-woman man. A one-woman man. Uh, I don't think, although application could certainly apply, that this is so much talking about the issue of divorce or even of polygamy that was common in the first century world. There's application there. The point more is this, is that a husband who wants, or an overseer who is a husband, must be a man that is fully committed to that woman he's married to. So a person can be only married once and only have one wife, and yet not be fully committed to that woman. He could have wandering eyes. He could have a heart that's, that's going off in other places. This is really speaking to the heart and the character of a man, the fidelity he has to his wife. And so he should not be a flirt. He should not be a person that has wandering eyes. He should not be a person that's looking to get out of the relationship he has. He should be a man fully committed to that woman. Now listen, that's true of every Christian. That should be true of every married man. But it is a qualification that a man who wants to be an overseer must meet. The next thing we read there in verse 2 is that he is to be temperate. That is, he is to be sober-minded. Now, depending on context, this word could be used one of two ways. It could actually be referred to as being physically sober. In other words, being moderate in drinking and not being drunk. Or it can be used in a figurative sense of a person's character. Their behavior is one that is restrained. It's their self-control. And that really seems to be what's in focus here because he's going to talk about this issue of physical drinking in just a moment. So the basic idea here is that an elder's behavior should be one that is um, it's thought through. It's not rash. It's not impulsive. He's not a person that is he that's swinging from one thing to the next thing. He's making sound biblical decisions. The Word of God is governing his thoughts, their thoughts. Still in verse 2, it talks about being sober-minded. Again, a lot of these words are very similar, and they have some general meanings, and they kind of stack upon each other, developing an overall character of a person. But this, I mean, ones whose desires have been curbed. They, they emotionally are in control of themselves. They are volitionally, the things they're choosing to do, they're, there's, they're, um, they're measured. They're not just 
you know, making decisions without having a clear, thoughtful understanding of the consequences. Still in verse 2, it says they should have good behavior. Greek word is cosmos, or meaning to having being orderly. We think of the word cosmos and, and the order of this created world. Well, a, a, a pastor, an elder, should be one that is orderly. I don't know who said this, but the quote is, The ministry is no place for the man whose life is a continual confusion of unaccomplished plans and unorganized activities. So they are to be one that's able to order their lives. Still, there in verse 2, as one that is hospitable. Again, the word here literally means a friend of strangers. An elder, a pastor, should be one who's very friendly to the people he does not know. And so it was very important in the first century world that Christians welcomed in one another. As the gospel was being spread, as people traveled about to be a Christian, you became very dependent upon the goodwill of other believers. John talks about this in some of his epistles, and that they should welcome those who are traveling through. And so the home of a pastor, the home of an elder, should be a place that people are invited into and they are welcomed into and not one that is aloof and a stranger to strangers, but one that is welcoming to strangers. And then at the end of verse 2, it says that he ought to be able to teach. He ought to know what to say, but he also ought to be able to say it in such a way that people are able to receive it and understand it and apply it to their lives. This is a developing uh, skill that a, a man can have. And of course, not just a man, but this is what we're referring to, the leadership of the church. Elders should be able to handle the Word of God well. Now listen, this doesn't mean he's got to be you know, an orator of the first, you know, uh, first class. It just means he needs to know the Word to be able to communicate it and exhort. And I think we have to be careful that we don't esteem that, that ability to communicate too high and forget about the character. Notice here that the ability to teach is thrown into a, uh, a, you know, a, a long list of other character traits. And so he ought to be one that is able to teach. In verse 3, we come to a list of some of the disqualifiers. Um, not given to wine. So an elder shouldn't be someone that is frequently seen drinking. Um, in other words, he's, not a, he's definitely not a drunkard, but he's certainly not a person that that's how you picture the elder or the pastor. Uh, this is a man who just loves his, his alcohol. And, you know, you, he's, you, you picture him and you, always, you picture him with a beer in his hand. You picture him with a glass of wine. That is not how it should be. Now, this is no prohibition against drinking either. And this culture is very common for them to drink. Um, and, uh, you know, because they didn't have a large choice of beverages. But that, this was an important issue, is something that is clearly seen. Because remember, Timothy, when he was traveling about, he had adopted the uh, philosophy and the approach that he was going to abstain from alcohol. And in doing that, Paul had to write to him and say, Timothy, it's all right. Have a little wine for your stomach's sake. You see, the water was not clean. It was not pure. So to put some wine in it would dilute it. It would help make it a little cleaner. Um, and it would help to, you know, with stomach issues. 
So, but for Timothy, he had adopted the idea that he wasn't going to drink. And Paul had to exhort him that it was okay to do that. The point here is not so much, is it all right to have anything to drink or not at all to drink? The point that Paul's making is the people who lead the church should not be seen as those that are spending much time drinking. And um, this could be an issue. And it would cause those who are um, following them to maybe be stumbled if they saw this. In Isaiah 28, verse 7, Isaiah rebukes the leaders of his days for drunkenness. He says, And these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. I mean, the picture was sad. I mean, you have the, you have the original friar tucks, if you will. <laughs> they were drunk, and they were carrying out ministry. Ezekiel 44, verse 21. No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. So when engaging in the work of ministry, it's clear that a that a pastor or an elder or any leader should not be engaged in drinking. On their, when they're not engaged in that, this comes down to a matter of conviction. For me, I've chose to take a very conservative approach while not judging others, pastors or leaders who maybe feel like they should. But this is something that um, we just have to be really careful of, that you're not ensnared. I've had more than one um, come to me and call me pastors who having this liberty to drink I'm not questioning it but having too much and getting pulled over and being issued um, DUIs I'm telling you the reputation thing is a hard thing to overcome and so I just would say be so very very careful on this matter as we keep on moving um, through this, this list of characteristics, we also read that one should not be violent. It's nice if your elders aren't beating you up, right? But, but the point here is this, is that pastors and leaders and elders are given a lot of authority by the Lord. And it's been proven down through the ages that some will take this and they will abuse that. And some others, understanding the place of authority, Unwilling to stand up against that abuse. It's a tragic thing to think about elders, pastors, overseers being violent with people. And I would just say if you have that as an issue where you attend church, it's time for you to find another church. You know, another thing that could disqualify somebody is if they were greedy for money. They, you, you're not satisfied with what you have, and you see the body of Christ as a means to gain finances. What a tragedy. Money is certainly something that an elder, a pastor, is going to have to deal with, and therefore the heart must be clean and must not desire to have it. They should be content. Elders are to be gentle. They are not to be quarrelsome. They are not to be covetous. All of these things are listed there in verse 3. In verses 4 and 5, we read of how an elder, a pastor, how they should have their house in control, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So if you're going to care for the people of God 
and you don't have a clue of how to run your own house, you don't know how, you lack knowledge and instruction and wisdom, then being in the place of leading a church is not a good position. Now, I, I must say, there have been many who have felt disqualified over the actions of, of their children. And it's not because they didn't know how to lead their children. It's because in knowing how to lead their children, their children have decided to not follow that wisdom and that guidance. And so I think we have to be very careful. But if you know how to lead your children and you choose not to walk in that wisdom of correction and other uh, points of, of setting the standards in your house, or you're just clueless, then it's clear that you should not be one that's leading. In verse 6, we read, Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. So a person who's going to stand up and oversee a church should be a person that has developed and has become mature in their Christian walk. Just because somebody has charisma, just because somebody has the ability to communicate, just because a person is friendly, those are all things that are important. But they, in and of themselves, do not make a person ready for ministry. They must be tested. They must have gone through uh, leadership. You know, when you, we look to ordain people, we look to see, have they led people well? Is there a pattern of them leading people well? In verse 7, we close here with a description given for the elders. It says, He must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. What's that? A pastor, a leader, should be the same guy behind the pulpit, in the office, in his house, and out in the community. Because he's among unbelievers doesn't mean he begins to act like unbelievers. He continues to live a life that is in keeping with godly Christian character, not able to have reproach, lest people out in the world would look and say, whatever, I know this guy. I know what he's like. I know what he's like when he's not you know, in the pulpit. And people would not want to follow the Lord. As we look at the second half of this section, verses 8 through 13, Paul gives a list of qualifications for men who would serve as deacons. And it's really, I'm not going to go through the list in the same fashion because there are many points that are exactly the same. But let me just say a little bit of a word about deacons. Deacons are doers. At our church, many of the people that would be team leaders would be qualified as deacons. They're fulfilling that role of taking care of the practical ministry of the church. It's not that they're non-spiritual. That would be a wrong idea completely. But it's that they are more con uh, uh, consumed with taking care of the physical task. Acts chapter 6, we see a really good example. Peter, an elder, um, was asked to solve a problem out in the, uh, the church with widows not getting a fair distribution of food. He says, I need to be given to prayer in the word. Let's appoint men who can serve, diakonos, deacons, appoint men who can serve and take care of these things. And so men like Stephen and Philip were appointed and they took care of that practical work so that the elders might give themselves completely to prayer and to the word. And so this is kind of a, a point of uh, distinction between elders and a, a, of uh, those that serve as deacons. Um, in verse 9, we see that they are to be spiritual men, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. 
they know the Word of God. They're not uninformed. It's not that elders are informed and deacons are uninformed. No, these are men that fully understand how and what the Word of God has to say. What we do find in this list is in verse 11, there's instruction given to the wives that they are to be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. So word of instruction. Now some see verse 11 as not as a word of instruction to the wives of the deacons, but as to a different office in the church. It would be uh, women who are deacons, deaconesses, if you will. There's no doubt that the word deacon, diakonos, as the Greek word, was used in a verbal sense of women that serve. The word simply means to serve. Um, is this a statement that there is the office of deaconesses in the church? Some would say yes, some would see no, say no. It's like, well, it says wife. What's the confusion? Well, the word for wife is the same word for woman. The word for husband is the same word for man. So context is always going to dictate whether we're talking about a wife or we're talking about a woman. So the context here is not explicit. However, I would just say that he immediately returns in verse 12 back to deacons, back to men holding this office. And it's for that reason I see this as a reference to men. But that women served is so clear. Phoebe, Junia, uh, Yodia, Syntyche. These are all ladies that had a prominent place of ministry and service inside the church, as is the case down to this day. As we look at this, let's just kind of keep reading in verse 12. It says, Let deacons be husbands of one wife, ruling their children um, and their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. You know, there's this temptation that the enemy loves to send to elders, to deacons, to anybody who's going to serve. And that is, if I do this, it's just going to drain my life. It's going to be too much of a, a requirement upon my life. But look what it says there. You obtain for yourself a good standing. There is a blessing associated with serving. And I'll tell you, I mean, for the last 25 years here, I've had the privilege of serving as the pastor of Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. It has not been a hardship. It has not been a drain on my life. It has not been something that I loathe and I've got to just pick myself up. I mean, my problem is I've got to leave church. My problem is I have to let go of things because I love I love you guys. I love the body of Christ. I love the Lord, and I love doing the work that he's called us to do. And I can tell you that while there are certainly uh, sacrifices that are made, it's hard for me to call them a sacrifice because of the goodness and the blessedness that's associated with this. Now listen, it's not that it's everything is peaches and cream every time I answer the phone or read an email or have an appointment, okay? It doesn't always go well. But you know what? It would be completely unfair of me to try and characterize pastoring as a really tough thing in light of the few episodes that happen. It comes with the territory. I get it. 
It is a blessing to serve. But let me just tell you this. It's a blessing for all of you to serve however God has called you, however God has gifted you. If you're tired at the end of the day having served Jesus, if you got to stay up late to get it done, if you have to get up early, if you have to say no to another thing you wanted to do another in, in order to love the body of Christ and to edify one another, that gives you a good standing before the Lord. And I promise you, more importantly, Scripture promises you, in that day, when you stand before Jesus, you are not going to regret that you spent too much time serving the Lord. It is truly a blessing. It's a privilege. I don't have to serve you. I get to serve you. I don't have to serve Jesus. I have the immense privilege to do that. And I just would encourage all of you to think about this. One of the things that's very heavy upon the heart of the elders. Now, who are the elders? Well, I mean, you can go online. You can look at on the on the website, but elders are those that serve as board members, making the decisions of finances and all the rest. But elders are also the pastors on staff. The pastors do this full time. The elders, not they don't do it full time. They serve in a lay capacity doing this. I just want to encourage you that you have people that love you and are concerned for you and joyfully give themselves away for you. We're not perfect, and I don't want to for a second pretend like that's the case. But I'm just telling you, as somebody who gets to see behind the scenes the kind of people that are serving you and laboring for you and your team leaders and home fellowship leaders and youth workers and the women that serve in the men's ministry and the women's ministry, wow, there are so many of you that serve so well at the church. But this is the thing that's on our heart. As we come back, whenever that is, to the church, we need to see more people serving. There's need for people to labor in the Word of God with the children. There's need for people to oversee the jail ministry and the nursing home ministry. There are people that are needed to just be available to counsel and to pour themselves out. And it's you. Ephesians tells us that the job of the leadership, the elders of the church, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And as you pour yourself out for the church, you know what you're going to find? It's a blessing. There's a good standing. You will hear the Lord saying to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me just close. I said if I had time, I'd address it. There are, there are essentially four different types of church structures that we see in the world today and mainly in America. There's a congregational government where everybody in the church votes that's a member on the decision and the direction of the church. Many churches are congregational churches. Fantastic, well-led churches are like that. But it's the, it's the church member that actually votes. Um, the other form of government is uh, a regional leadership where you have one man that's over a lot of churches. And this would be called um, like in, in a, a bishop or an Episcopalian uh, uh, style. So the authority of the church rests in a, one man who's oversight of several churches. Um, the Presbyterian model would be one that comes from the Greek word presbytery, uh, or presbyteros, which is where we get our English um, word presbyterian. These are a group of men, of elders, that are all equally making and having the same influence and the same decision. The other form is what would be a pastor-led elder supported elder accountable and this is where we fall 
So what does that mean? When it comes to matters of finances, when it comes to matters of doctrine, when it comes to matters of character, all the elders at the church have the same voice. They have the same um, ability to make uh, uh, and vote on this. When it comes to the leadership ministry aspect of the church of how are we going to organize ministry, the pastor, in this case me, uh, senior pastor, has the lead which does not mean I don't ask for guidance and instruction. Uh, any of the elders, any of the pastors on staff, they can all tell you that I'm all, always asking, what do you think? What's your input? Do you agree? So this is how we are set up, accountable um, amongst a group of uh, five men when it comes to the finances, the doctrine, when it comes to the character of how we live our lives. When it comes to what missions we're going to do, are we going to have home fellowships? Are we going to have Sunday night prayer? What time are we going to, or what are we going to study next? The senior pastor has that authority. So this is how we fall into um, that structure. I just wanted to take a couple of minutes to talk about that in light of um, the, the discussion about the character. So this is what you can expect from your leadership. This is what you should expect from the elders, from the staff people, from those that serve as team leaders, as that our character is like this. We are not perfect. We are not saying that. But the general character of our life should be um, look like this. And if it doesn't, then that is where you would come and you would inquire and say, what about this issue in your life? It doesn't line up with Scripture. So being a leader gives authority, but that authority does not put that leader above Christian character. As a matter of fact, there is more responsibility. A more fully developed Christian character ought to be seen among the leaders. So again, let me just close by saying this. I love uh, pastoring this church. I love laboring with the men. And, and the women that serve at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. And I would just challenge you with this. As you go, pray for us. As you go, find out the call of God upon your life and the role that you're supposed to play. And step up and answer that call as we get ready to uh, come back together and walk into this building and see new people come, come in. I would just email us and just say, I am ready to serve. I'm ready to give of my time. I'm ready to uh, help out. And we will be faithful to talk with you and find that right place um, and um, support you in the work of that ministry. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the church. Thank you for each other. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us one another to walk this life with, to, to labor in this town, in this country to reach the world together. Lord, you've joined our lives together in your sovereign plan. You've pulled us together for such a time as this. You knew we would all be calling Calvary Chapel Lynchburg our home church when the church would stop meeting publicly. And Lord, when we begin to meet again, we want to be ready. And I pray you would give us a heart to serve and to give ourselves away. Lord, I pray for my life and the leadership that we would remain humble that you would give us the grace to live out a life that looks like this. And Lord, thank you that you have given us many good leaders in this church who understand this, 
and who walk in this way. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.